0: The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of New York Presbyterian Hospital or Columbia University Irving Medical Center. You're listening to Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Valve Team, a podcast where we discuss the advancements and treatments for patients with structural heart and valve disease. I'm your host, Dr. Isaac George. We have a great set of topics today that we're going to talk about. We have uh, Sashil Kadali, the director of the Valve Center. Myself, Isaac George. I'm a cardiac surgeon in the Valve Center. Becky Hahn, our director of Echo, interventional Echo, which we're going to find out what that is, actually. Thorsten Vall is here, who leads a lot of our uh, preclinical and research and innovation as well. You know, I'd like to start out by talking about valve fracture. Today's first topic we're going to discuss is valve fracturing. Valve fracturing is something over the last uh, two to three years has been introduced as a, a new way to improve hemodynamics in patients who have very small valves that have been Im- implanted and improve the overall uh, outcomes of valve and valve, especially for patients who have pre-existing patient prosthesis mismatch. It's an interesting concept. It obviously seems like it's um it may have some risk involved. And I and I just want to go through some of the steps. And I'll ask uh, both Sashil and Torsen, when you see a patient, how do you decide who a patient is good for for valve fracture versus not?
1: I mean, even before we get to that, maybe it's worth talking about why we need to even consider it, right? The, 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 everyone's excited about sort of valve and valve. As a bit So
0: are you implying that the surgeon didn't do their job? Is that what you're trying to no, no, say? No, no, no. Just trying time? to get
1: to the point of understanding what it is, right? I mean, we always talk about uh, you know valve and valve as a bailout, right? We do a bioprosthetic valve surgically in, in a young patient because valve and valve is a bailout, but it, it's not always a straightforward decision because in the end you got to opt- the hemodynamics have to benefit the patient, and we all think that we're going to get the large surgical valve first time, right? The, and part of the you know we're not even getting to the discussion of the sort of the the labeling of surgical valve sizes, which you know to be honest doesn't make sense, right? You know ideally, everyone gets a large valve, but we we understand that the, the most commonly used valves are 21 and 23 surgically, right? So those are small valves. The true IDs of most of those valves are, you know, 18 to 21, right? And, and it varies based on the manufacturing. And so then you're putting a smaller valve inside, and, and that's really the problem in the hemodynamics. I mean, obviously, the, the field of TAVR for valve and valve... Vinnie Boppett, uh, who's our colleague here, has been sort of instrumental in it, but he's uh, globetrotting as, uh, as he often does, so he, he couldn't join us today. Um, but uh, his valve and valve app is, is critical. I mean, it shows you that, you know, you have a, someone with a, tw- you know, 21-millimeter valve, the true ID is 19, and what size valve do you put in there? What kind of hemodynamics are you going to get?
0: So, I, so that's a good question. You know, one of the strongest predictors of what outcomes are after valve and valve and obviously, what kind of hemodynamics you have are the size of the implanted surgical valve. So, Becky, what do you use for deciding whether this is going to be a problem or if it's if someone is going to be suitable for a valve and valve in terms of uh, your definition of PPM? What do you what do what do you what cool. do you look at? Are yeah, you saying point six five point eight five? What? How do you approach that? Well,
2: if you're talking about PPM, it's some it's a little bit different, perhaps than many of the, the reasons why we're doing valve-in-valve valve today. I mean, we're doing valve-in-valve because valve there's been structural valve deterioration. There's been stenosis of the valve, or there's been severe regurgitation. And those two different types of structural valve deterioration actually make a difference in the, uh, in the, in the gradient and the valve area after the valve goes in. So if you have pure aortic regurgitation on a, on a prosthetic valve, then the resulting valve areas are going to be a little bit bigger than if you have a calcified leaflet. Because obviously now you've got an even more reduced size. If you have pure PPM, then, that, then that's an issue. So F- Philippe P. looked at the vivid registry and showed that, again, um, what determined valve size was really what you started with. So if you start with, um, you know, besides aortic stenosis and aortic regurgitation, which also des- uh, determine the end result EOA, if you start with PPM, um, and again, the differentiation is uh, any PPM, which is 085 to severe PPM, 0.65, you know, your resulting EOA are going to be determined in large part by what you start with.
0: Sure. I, I agree with that. So 0.85, 0.65. Torsten, you know, your your practice is uh, uh, the upstate practice, which I can say is the older, you know, very old, very sick practice. You know, what does it matter to you if your indexed orifice area is 0.65 versus 075 Versus 0.85 for the 92-year-old who's coming in who uh, can't walk.
3: Well, I think I think uh, the functional status really plays strongly a role here. I mean, we we understand now very clearly that that we can't let the patient leave the room with a mean gradient above 20 millimeters mercury. That that is uh, uh, affecting long term long-term outcomes. However, as always in interventional cardiology and in surgery, the life expectancy of the patient and the expectation of how much we improve their functional status factors into our decision-making. So to answer your question, in a 92-year-old that is not very mobile, I'm not going to be very concerned about uh, a, a mild residual gradient versus uh, sort of a f- very fit 80-year-old that's actually still actively participating in, in, in life. I want to bring that patient to 92, and uh, uh, we want to optimize the outcomes. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, the valve cracking um, uh, was started. We, we realized that we have to do something to optimize hemodynamic outcomes in some of okay, these patients. Can I
1: make, counter, counter-argument? I, I, I disagree. I mean, I think we, we need to optimize it, it depends on risk-benefit, obviously, but it, it, we need to optimize outcomes in everyone, right? The 90-year-old with an EF of 30 may not tolerate a mean gradient uh, well, and you may not get the benefit of, of the valve and valve So, I mean, I think it, it comes down to if the procedure is safe, and, and uh, you know, Mid-America, uh, Keith Allen has made the argument, right, we should do it in everyone, not just the 21s, not the 23s, but the 25s, What? Well, if you're doing the procedure, should we – and I'm not, not saying this is – I'm, I'm throwing out there. Is, is that the argument? We should try to optimize the result in every patient. If we can get a better valve area, we should. And that comes down to the technique and is it safe? And do we have data that valve fracturing is without risk, right? If, you, if we can get it with without risk or, you know, 0.5% risk, are we willing – should we take it? Because then we take it in a broader population. You take it in that 90-year-old. Um, but maybe you should take it in the 90-year-old with an EF of 30 because that person can't tolerate mean gradient uh, of. of uh, but if the if the, if it's an AR population in a 90-year-old with LV, with a normal LV, maybe it's different. But it all comes to well, the safety of the procedure.
3: It, it's not the only thought I have. I mean, the the reality is the reality is that not every valve can can be cracked and will not always be able to optimize hemodynamics. But if, if, let's say, I have a younger patient where I, where, where I know that I wouldn't get an optimal uh, result with valve-in-valve, with you valve, have very different discussions yeah. with, with yeah. that patient. Well,
0: I mean, I think the other thing to think about is that the small valves have a lot more to gain. So if you can crack a valve and get an area from 1.2 to 1.5, that makes you know more of a difference than getting... 1.5 to 1.8, or 1.8 to 2.1. Maybe
1: I'll see what Becky's thoughts are. It's not about the acute hemodynamics. Do you think it's going to impact the durability of your valve and valve, right? Yeah. Uh, is is so, If you put a 23 core valve or a 23 sapien, is it going to last longer if you were able to fracture the prior surgical valve?
2: Right. So I think that there's some uh, belief that uh, the higher the mean gradient by the end of the procedure and, and uh, you know during long-term follow-up then, uh, the shorter the duration, uh, the durability of the, of the valve. So there's been obviously concern about PPM, particularly in the TAVR population, because of durability. Um, those increased gradients, obviously, are, are, and the shear forces are going to a- increase on those leaflets, and therefore, the thought is that they're, that they're not going to last.
0: This is a little bit off topic, but mortality really has only been shown in a severe PPM population. It's not been shown in intermediate or low, even in the, in the, in the, the, the core valve experience, as well as the surgical experience, which is not randomized, but retrospective. Mortality has only been shown in, in gradients that have been above 20, at least in the, in the surgical population. I, I forget what the exact number was from the core valve paper. Um, so should the target even be partner, that we just right? do yeah. everyone, or should we aim for a certain gradient? If we're at 15, are we yeah, happy think, with that? I, I
2: mean, mean, I think there are a lot of people that look at, you know, gradient as, as you know, the, 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 the answer for uh, or the key measurement uh, for follow-up. And I think that, as we've learned with our patient population, a lot of whom do not have normal ejection fraction or normal mechanical function that um, that gradients, because we have low flow, low gradient all the time, The gradients are, are really not going to be the, the answer. For me, uh, when we did this normals paper that came out um, in Jack Imaging, <clears throat> just sort um, We, we, yeah, we,
0: we heard, heard about that.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> a lot of people heard about
1: yeah, that.
2: <laughs> people, as, as did I hear again about it. Um, but... Um, You know, in in that manuscript, what we discovered was, despite perhaps some differences in the various valve types in the uh, absolute valve areas, that we ended up having the same standard deviation of those measurements um, uh, that were fairly uh, percent standard deviation that were relatively consistent between the two groups. And so what we proposed was that not, not only should we be following mean gradients, but that we should also be still calculating valve areas, which are... Relatively, not entirely, but relatively independent of gradient, right? So we normalize for gradient when we calculate the valve area. And so, um, if we just use a percent change as our cutoff for structural valve deterioration, then we will we would we, we would be more accurate. So it'd be a 25% change uh, in the EOA and 50% change in the. You know, I think gradient itself and using the 10 millimeters uh, mercury for possible and 20 millimeters of mercury for definite. You know, some people use a change in the gradient, but others will look at the absolute gradient. And I think that absolute gradients are, are problematic because, again, uh, of, the, of high flow in some patients and low flow in others.
0: It becomes almost too complex to standardize, right? I mean, you almost have to take every single patient individually to, to understand 100%, 100%. each patient.
2: No, you're 100% right. I mean, what we recommend is that you use the patient as their, their own control. So let's get
0: to the procedure itself. So Sashil so and Torsen, um, can you take us through a valve fracture? And, and tell me, what are your um, what are your key points? Where can you mess this up? And and how do you keep the patient alive? No, I mean, I can start... I'll ask Sashil, not Torsen.
1: I'm, kidding, I'm <laughs> kidding. I can start with... Uh, I'll start off. I mean, I think the, the question... And I, Isaac, this is maybe a question to you. I, and maybe this is a general question, like who has, who has more fear or who should have more fear? The interventional cardiologist who hasn't seen, doesn't generally see the open surgical anatomy and maybe we don't understand what we're going to get into trouble or is it the, or, or as a surgeon where you've seen the entire anatomy, I mean, do you think this is stupid? I mean, do you think, what kind of trouble can we get into if you fracture a valve and when do you get into trouble? When, when do you think we'll get into trouble? I and mean, you see it all the time, right?
0: You know, it's interesting. I, I think it's, um, I think there's less risk in terms of what we do because we have a surgical valve in place. And the surgical valve, inherently, we've taken out a lot of the calcium. So if we post-dilate that, that's uh, still within, I think, some reasonable stretch of, uh, of the annulus inherently. I think if there was calcium in place and um, uh, it wasn't debrided in the original operation, then I think that risk is different. Um, so I think it's relatively safe. And the amounts that we're stretching are overall I think something that the annuals, most annulus can accommodate. If you're talking about a fourth, fifth time reop when they're very fibrosed and you, you could possibly tear something um, and then clearly, and has like, anyone heard about
1: anything being torn during any of these
0: cases? So really I, I looked this up about three or four months ago. I've, there's been no ruptures from the aortic side. There have been ruptures from the mitral side when people have tried to fracture the mitral side.
1: Interesting. So, the, the, and what what do you think are the are the reasons on the mitral side? Is it uh, the the continuity of the atria and the ventricle, like a posterior disruption type thing you see surgically, or what what, what happens?
0: I think it was a disru- it was a disruption that was described, and I think that's exactly what happens. I think you just don't have the same structure; uh, it's less fiber support. You're when you uh, when you stretch it, you're going straight into to LV muscle as opposed to kind of the continuity, which provides probably some support.
1: I mean, the thing that sort of uh, to me I, when I first heard, heard people doing it, I thought it was crazy, right? I mean we don't oversize a BAV balloon in an aortic because it's going to rupture and the whole thing sounded crazy. And, and, you know, to, at some point people talk about some, you know, internationally generally, some are going to be risk averse, right? Cause we're talking about doing something, not for an acute result. You're talking about doing something for a, lo- a long-term benefit and it goes against the nature of, I need to just want to get this guy off the table. And now we sort of have to evolve and move on and say, I'm not looking about just getting this guy off the table. I need to do this safely. So then, then we say, okay, fine. Now I think we all feel, and we've done a bunch, and there's been a bunch of literature. It's not novel as much, and so we feel comfortable. Then the first, then the next sort of hurdle was: do you do it before or after, right? If you do it uh, before, you've it's gone against our nature, Torsten, right? We don't balloon bioprosthetic valves, and. You know, well, how yeah, can you do it
3: before? That, that is a very interesting point. In in in, in the early years of Taver, we we were shown these pictures by uh, Danny Devere and others that uh, of videos of uh, all the debris sitting on these on these leaflets, and we were very uh, worried about uh, embolizing uh, uh, even just debris in, into the body. Obviously, now that we have cerebral protection, that that that's been a little bit less of an issue. But you could. Uh, embolized to other important uh, uh, places, and I have to say, we have to still be a little bit cautious. Um, celebrating that we never have seen uh, any major adverse outcomes because the numbers overall reported are still are still small compared to mm-hmm. other reports that we have overall over Taver. But I I, I generally uh, uh, have been impressed that that we don't seem to be a pr- paying a price. We. We relatively safely are now um, uh, ballooning these valves, and you realize that very often we are not uh, leading to major tears, and you actually have competent valve function very well, often but after but the balloon. Then, uh, but if I it's safer know. to I'm balloon, sure.
1: if it's safer to balloon after, why not put the Tavor in well, and balloon after?
2: No, I mean I uh, I think this is this is a real problem if you're going to balloon after because every there's a lot of uh, studies that uh, benchtop studies that have shown that if you crush the leaflets uh, against a stent frame that you end up having collagen fractures. And so, you know, you can look at, you know, the histology or you can even look grossly and you'll see the imprint of the stent frame on the leaflet. And so this is just uh, absolutely. Is it the same
1: for core valve though? Say you put a core valve and you're, you're, you know, you're ballooning it with a, it's a 23 core valve. You're ballooning it with a 20 or 22 true balloon. Is the leaflet going to reach that frame? If, also, if you're ballooning low, is it the, is it the same with a core valve? What do you guys think?
3: I think That's it's different. Question. I think uh, if you if you manage to uh, land a high core valve implant in in the bioprosthetic valve, uh, post dilation is going to be safer than 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 with a Sapien valve with respect to leaflet damage. However. At, at so this but the
1: core valve could pop out though, right? Because so you, you land a high core valve and you yeah. oversize it and the core valve could <laughs> pop out of the surgical so, valve, right?
3: So just to
0: clarify, the way we size these balloons in general has been one size larger than... One the, millimeter the, larger. One millimeter larger than the stent ID of the surgical valve. So it needs to be slightly larger than the geometric uh, dimension of the valve so that the valve actually cracks. And so that's something that you, you can figure out from the app as well.
1: Right, I'm playing devil's advocate, but I agree that we, we, we need to di- uh, dilate these before... I agree that we need embolic protection if we're going to do it. So
0: let's say this, Sashio. So if you have a patient who you has a low EF and you you want to do a valve fracture, um, you take the balloon up and you know you're going to get AI and they may not tolerate AI, what valve would you use, a sapien or a core valve?
1: I don't know that it matters uh, that much. I mean, I think you you just need to be able to get be prepared to get the valve in quickly. I think what we've done with... You know, we we use for native valves, uh, you know, I think as a group, we've generally used the inline sheath. If you're doing valve fracture, I wouldn't do that. Uh, What we've always, you know, what we've done lately is put a a 14 French E sheath, do the BAV through that, and then put the core valve through that because you're not using the pro using the regular. Because what you want to be able to do is make sure you're ready, right? You, you, You fracture the, you have your sheath in, you fracture the valve, and then you come out quickly and be prepared and go in. And then you're not obsessing about am I at, at a two millimeter depth? I you're gonna get the valve in quickly, stabilize the patient, and then make a decision. And I think that the time from fracture to the, the device the valve being in should be less than a minute. And I think you can do that with, with either device. And I think that's why we, we get away with it. If you if you have AI, we you know, we're pacing, we pace a little bit faster, we work with anesthesia, make sure the hemodynamics are a little bit better before we start. So I think you gotta be ready is the key.
0: So Becky, in our limited experience doing fracture, um, what have you seen in terms of the results, in terms of gradients at least, just grossly?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that before we fractured, I mean, frequently we're doing these in the 19, you know, so under the uh, under 23, so 19, 21 millimeter valves. But in the 19s, it was not uncommon for us to see mean gradients that were, you know, well above 10, certainly, and, and, and would sometimes approach 20. 20. And so this, this was not a good result. Um, And now with the fracture, we're definitely able to get a much bigger valve. So usually, usually, yeah, usually below 10. And then, you know, valve areas that in the past, you know, with a 19, we would say, oh, we got one centimeter squared. I mean, they start off at 0.6 and we got one centimeter squared. That's fantastic. Now, if, if, if we got, you know, under 1.2, I'd be surprised, you know, usually it's going to be, uh, somewhere between 1.2, 1.5, on a uh, 1.4, maybe on a, on a 19.
1: 19. I mean, the question I mean, of what, what balloon, Torsten. Uh, I mean, what, what balloon do we use and are, uh,
3: oh, we pressures? Op- and we've we've yeah. traditionally used uh, true balloons uh, for these to to avoid rupture of the balloon, but we've ruptured true balloons, yeah. so I think it's still very, very important to be absolutely careful to de-air this balloon properly before inflation to avoid any uh, embolizations of of air during during balloon inflation i want to ask a, another question so some of these patients they have small surgical valves implanted because, because they have a small root which then also sometimes creates that dilemma that if you expand that surgical valve now you narrow the distance the pre-existing sm, uh, small distance between the left main and the surgical valve so sometimes we've had cases where you sort of have competing competing interests here protecting the left main versus uh, expanding the uh, valve further for improved hemodynamics so that there's some challenging scenarios I don't think there's a easy answer for yeah
0: there's no question I mean w- in the patients that we uh, we've opted not to do it for what has it been for it's been for low left main it's been for um, uh, potentially not tolerating a procedure um, um, you know, th- those are the kinds of things where we wouldn't do it for. any Anything else where we wouldn't do?
1: No, I think it's the main thing. I mean, in general, we've been more, much more aggressive. I think anyone, especially any twenty one, nineteen for certain, and even the 23s lately, I think we've been more aggressive about uh, fracturing, especially, you know, it depends on the body size. I mean, it's an, again, it's all risk-benefit trade-off. An 80-pound woman, it's different than a 250-pound person. You know, th- those are all different. Uh, in terms of the setup, uh, I mean, I think, People have to be ready, right? I think uh, we use the true balloon. Others have advocated the Atlas Gold. Uh, as I mean, I think a lot of the literature has been on the Atlas Gold. I, mean, I don't, I don't have experience with it, uh, you know, but I don't know if it's more rupture resistant. Um, but you have to have the initial syringe, and then you have to have an <laughs> interflator, and you have to be comfortable with the interflator, and you have to dial up. And the, you know, the, the last case we did fractured at 20 atmospheres. And sometimes and, and it's the, at pacing tens, run, yeah, the pacing run, the pacing run is long. Sometimes the pacing run is long, and. So the hemodynamics, you, you're you're setting this patient up for you know poor hemodynamics coming out of this, right? Uh, but you have to be ready. You just you keep turning until uh, until you, you what you often see on the interflator, All of a sudden the pressure drops. That's to me that's the sign of fracture. People talk about hearing the fracture. I've never heard it. you <laughs> My hearing. I'm old, uh, maybe, and <laughs> my hearing's not good. I don't know. Have you guys uh, heard it? Yeah,
2: I'm I mean, the only time I heard. I, I, I've Usually, I hear it. Becky screaming, "Yo!" <laughs> <or something. laughs> yeah. If you see the If you see the floral and you see the fracture, you're just amazed yeah, yeah. every time. <laughs> right. Um, but the only time I heard people hearing it has really been on the table on the table. It's just yeah. bench top yeah. modeling. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let's say you have a surgical valve that can expand. Do you think that adds something to the to the equation here, kind of long term? I,
1: I think so. I think we need more data. We, I mean, the ins,
0: you're talking about the inspiss valve, right?
1: right. Obviously. Uh, yeah. The, the, uh, the, it's a valve that's designed for valve and valve has the the frame uh, can expand and you put a valve inside we don't have uh, you know data with people getting it but it, it makes sense i mean i think it intuitively makes sense right. you know i've i've asked you know sir, you and vinny to use it on some of my patients especially you know obviously the ones that are getting a 23 or a 23 valve i, I think it makes real sense
3: so, is there any importance to looking at the CT beforehand at all, aside from looking at the distance to to the of the valve to the coronaries, or like, is there any sort of calcium signature around the surgical valve that would make you worry about uh, fracturing the valve? I
0: mean, that's a good question. The only thing I would say is if there's some jagged piece of calcium in the LVOT that would rupture the balloon per se, but but no, but we've ruptured balloons doing all sorts of things, right? And it's not predictive, right? as far as I can tell.
2: No. Do you think that, you know, surgeons are more likely to do um, aortic uh, enlargement, uh, root enlargement, in, in order to get a bit of bigger valve in now that they know about these, these issues with PPM? And...
0: You know, I think people have been, I mean, people have been aware of PPM for a long time, and it just comes down to balancing the risk versus not. And, Usually the fit younger people, it's, you know, it's not an issue for, it's the reop 81 year old woman who's obese, who you're doing uh, an annular enlargement on, who you're really wondering, you know, this is one of the questions I've always had. What does it mean when you do a root enlargement to help hemodynamics, quote unquote, hemodynamics in an obese person? Um, and does that really represent true physiologic PPM? Because what I tell people is if, they, if they're a small person or a, a large person and they have a small aorta and small valve um, and you need to do a root enlargement, that's one thing. You do it. But an obese person who's just always been obese and doesn't move around that much, they don't, I don't know if they need a, a large valve. I, I tell them that their, their body is too big for their heart and I tell them they have to lose weight.
3: Interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, we so you have- are talking
3: about patient-to-heart mismatch.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> or maybe it's my heart mismatch. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can also always, the interventionalists can always do the root enlargement for you afterwards. Oh. The- <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So the
0: gauntlet is down. So I think uh, we're going to wrap up here. Uh, it's been a great discussion, and um, I think it's time for us to uh, go do some cases. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you.